Welcome to Unsupervised Learning, a security, AI, and meaning-focused podcast that looks at how best to thrive as humans in a post-AI world. It combines original ideas, analysis, and mental models to bring not just the news, but why it matters and how to respond. All right, in this sponsored episode of Unsupervised Learning, we're talking to Shil Sirkar. Shil is the VP of Engineering and Data Science at BlackBerry. We talked about machine learning and cybersecurity, the evolution from ML to generative AI, predictive versus generative models, preventative AI and cybersecurity, the silence AI platform, attacker versus defender dynamics, temporal advantage and threat detection, synthetic malware generation, behavioral analysis for cybersecurity, and the future of AI in cybersecurity. And with that, here is our conversation with Shil Sirkar. All right, welcome, Shell, to Unsupervised Learning. Thank you, Daniel. I'm I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to our discussions. Awesome. Um, can you start just by telling us a bit about yourself and uh, what you do at BlackBerry? Sure. So uh, I lead engineering and uh, data science, uh, machine learning teams at BlackBerry, and uh, with the core objective of uh, threat research and application of machine learning in preventing and predicting threats so that our technologies can be deployed and uh, such that uh, we can protect uh, threats before they, they occur. Uh, so that's that's really my role. And within that, uh, you know, there is responsibilities around uh, publishing papers, um, defining new standards, participating in various consortiums, uh, providing thought leadership on where the market is evolving, especially in relation to uh, machine learning and its applications in, in uh, cybersecurity. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So, so AI, I guess, has been around for decades, actually. It kind of blew up with the uh, Gen AI recently, uh, about a year ago. But before we talk about that, I guess, let, let's figure out like how exactly we got here. Like, What was the path? When you think about what you can do with it, how do you see that evolving from like the ML space into the Gen AI space? And like mm -hmm. how that applies to like prevent, detect, respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you know what really happened. Like you know, I, I have to start with something, right? Like you know, machine learning, deep learning uh, as a set of technologies uh, have been around for a very long time. So I think if there is one thing that uh, really changed is uh, availability of cloud and compute resources, and that enabled um, you know newer types of machine learning algorithms. Uh, newer and better way of processing and crunching uh, various uh, type of data, which really kickstarted the consumerization of AI. And, you know, ability to train a model with very vast data sets because of cheap storage, uh, available compute and accessible cloud GPUs, um, various types of open source tools with various machine learning algorithms. So you really don't need to know a lot about machine learning, but you could sort of, you know, that kind of gave the flavor, if you will, and uh, technologies such as ChatGPT or detecting images, uh, making um, various kind of consumer applications that are suggestive and things like that. So what really happened was that consumerization and effectively that reduced the barrier to entry uh, for, for pretty much everybody, right, that wants to take uh, data science and machine learning in their day-to-day -day business, whether it's improving processes, making better decisions, using analytical tools uh, for such things. Uh, so that's really what happened. And of course, you know, um, the uh, 
cybersecurity industry particularly um, had to deal with that consumerization where you've had all of these novel malwares that are getting developed at a very high pace. Uh, because now you have machine learning tools that are kind of easy to identify software vulnerabilities, which would have taken a very long time before. But now, you know, these things are widely available at the fingertips uh, of the bad guys, if you will. So, so that is really what happened, I think, you know, sort of enabling uh, this sort of technology. Interesting. And how do you say, how, how do you see like uh, detection, uh, prevention and response? Like how, how do you see those evolving from like a pure ML standpoint versus like mm -hmm. Gen AI standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we talk about uh, uh, machine learning, I think uh, for the longest time, you know, it's around uh, predictive, whether it's predicting a particular pattern uh, and these models were able to predict from those representation what you know the output would be given new data, right? Trying to classify them and group them. And typically, you know, that branch uh, we call you know deep learning. You know, in that space, it's all about uh, making inferences based on previously learned behavior, mm -hmm. right? That could be based on time. That could be based on data representation. That could be based on you know various factors to be able to make those types of prediction. Um, Generative AI is uh, is again a, an interesting way of doing the same, except the difference is it is generating new content that has a statistical resemblance of learned content. So effectively, generative AI is a tool that allows you to generate new content, mm. whether it's generating textual content, or whether it's generating uh, pictures, or whether it's generating uh, new type of uh, video infographics, etc. So it's about generating based on its uh, learned experiences. And it's so interesting in that if you give it statistically significant data, it seems that what it generates or able to generate, um, the logical nuances flow in such a way that it makes sense to us. So for example, generative AI, it basically is generating sequences of tokens or words uh, based on probability distribution. And effectively, when it is done, and we as humans, when we read it, it makes sense because the logical structures and uh, the relationship between uh, the contexts are something the model is able to learn, right? So yeah. that is fundamentally different, right? When we talked about predictive, like especially in cybersecurity, predictive modeling uh, is uh, one of the most important things because that is what stops malware. Or in our case, with a prevention-first approach, uh, predictive AI is super important because we need to be able to stop this malware before it exits. And you know, at a very high level, not getting into cybersecurity specifics, I mean, there are really three stages, right? How did the malware get in? Once the malware is in your infrastructure, your environment, or your endpoint, we need to be able to stop it. Ideally, we wanted to stop it before it even gets in. But regardless of at what stage that prevention occurs, you need a way to be able to predict something good or bad. And based on those decisions, it needs to be stopped from execution. So that is what we call preventive AI. And the outcomes of preventive AI is very important because we need to get it right all mm. the time. Whereas the threat actors just need to get it right once. Yeah. And then damage is done. Right? But we need to get it right all the time. And also we need to get it right in a sense that if we get it wrong, not only there is damage, also there might be an impact to the end user's workflow, right? Which typically we call false positives. So you're trying to do something, open a PowerPoint, you know, you're have a deadline, and then all of a sudden something killed it. In Interesting. Call drivers to IT. Yeah. 
So you, you talked about attackers. Um, how, how do you see like the timeline of, is this helping attackers more or is this helping defenders more? Mm-hmm. And like, and how's that going to change over like the next one to five years? Do you, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is, um, like uh, consumerization of AI, of course, the attacker has a slight edge is because they really don't have a lot to lose, right? Uh, it's almost like, you know, they can keep trying and then, you know, eventually there is one little place that they may be able to sneak in, Yeah. right? But the defenders, they have to get it right all the time. On the attacker side, they are trying to come up with these technology to find areas to uh, penetrate, whereas the defenders, are not looking specifically on the evolution of the technology, but going from the first principles, which is what is the attack surface? How can we build better models that are able to predict what is about to happen based on various indicators, various signals? So regardless what technology or what tool has been used, um, from a defender's perspective, the, the research and the methods do not change, except we also have better tools, better technology, so that you no longer need to create manual signatures or manual block lists or manual processes. Of course, those methods will not work anymore. So defenders definitely have to leverage AI and machine learning to be able to handle this. But that is a given in this day and age. So so yeah, so I think you know that's uh, I, I think it favors equally, but perhaps the attackers have a slight edge because they really don't have anything to lose. They can keep trying until they get in. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree with you. One way I see it is that attackers don't have to be so careful. So Mm. you have brand new tech, brand new gen AI techniques, and they're just like, oh, let's use this tomorrow. Let's roll out a campaign tomorrow for uh, customized spear phishing for, for our targets. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't really harm them. Whereas for Mm -hmm. a defender, you can't just have a brand new technology and roll it out into production. That's right. You have to be more careful, which means more time. So it's slower. So I feel like, I feel like uh, attackers can experiment faster. They can experiment faster. Yeah. Now there are some tools, you know, that, that we use to kind of get to the same, same sort of, uh, or similar um, velocity. And, uh, you know, we, we, we call it, uh, uh, we, we coined this notion called temporal advantage as a, as oh, a nice. mathematical indicator. Um, and the thing about uh, this indicator is typically, you know, in conventional software engineering, uh, when you develop new software, of course, you need to test it, it works, whether it scales, you know, does it uh, have any bugs and things like that, they get fixed. But in, in machine learning, especially in cybersecurity, you know, those tests are really not very helpful. So the tests that, that are helpful is how generalized is the model, especially with the prevention first methodology, how generalized are the model's ability to predict and prevent a threat or to stop a threat before it happens. How do you measure that? Or how do you uh, get confident uh, that this is sort of going to meet those kind of expectations? Mm-hmm. So what we've uh, done is that when we've developed, a, let's say, a new algorithm or a, or a new model uh, that we, we want to validate, what we do is we, we give it partial data uh, bounded by time. Uh, let's say there is a novel malware that we know uh, a type of an info stealer from our threat research team, a polymorphic malware that has came out, right? So what we would do is we would train a machine learning model with T minus one time, like let's say from data of various samples from the last three years, still that malware or that novel malware was first seen. 
so that we do not give it uh, that learning, if you will, from a training perspective. And then we would expose that uh, malware to it during our testing and verification process. And we will see the efficacy of our model, which was trained on historic data and validated with data that has come out in the next few months. So effectively, even though we're building a model today, we would only give it data from last one year, let's say, or last six months, and then identify all of the novel malware that has happened between those times, and then test it. And that will give us what is called a temporal predictive score. So what that tells us is that the model's ability to make a detection for things that it has never seen yeah. or are sufficiently unique. And time is the only test, right? It has to stand to the test of time. Since we cannot fast forward time, but we can rewind it so that we create our tests in a sense that gives us these scores, uh, which helps us kind of make these decisions on the efficacy and also make reasonable um, guesses on how well it will work when we release it. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's similar to separating the um, the test data and the and the training data separately, mm-hmm. so you can test. Except for you're doing Absolutely. it with um, with Fine. past and past compared to real world after mm-hmm. after that past has uh, has gone. So it's like, yeah. So and what are you seeing there? Are you seeing are you seeing that getting tighter? So you're having less and less drift over time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, you know, drift is a property of uh, you know, changing the underlying distribution of the data that the mm-hmm. model can no longer sort of correlate, right? And you know, generally constraining uh, constraining malicious code like in virtual memory, whether it's polymorphic or not, um, should not or will not at least will not evade our protection, right? And you know, what we see is that the cycle not only becomes tighter, but with Gen AI, we are also able to generate better malware because we also have a very large distribution of malware. So imagine a discriminative network, which is a model that we can train to generate variances of new type of malware. So we talked about the time prediction, right? Given data till. But now with a discriminative model, we can basically also now generate newer variants within that, typically what a malicious actor might do. But of course, with a very wide set of data with rigorous uh, mathematics and research behind it so that we can generate these novel type of behavior and then test the models against that. So oh, it's almost wow. like setting up a competition between a model that's purpose is to defend and then from that learning another model and its purpose is to beat uh, that model. So we create, you know, kind of a, uh, a zero sum game effectively is what we want so that they're competing against each other. and. Uh, and that effectively helps us make decisions where the model wins and why it wins so that we can make those adjustments that are necessary. That is fascinating. I think that has to be like the, the best way to approach it. And does each side of it have its own like RL going on where it, it's fighting against, uh, it, it has a goal that it's pursuing? Yeah, it, it is a, it's a reward-based system, right? Yeah. So the more it gets correct, the more it can adjust. So it gets rewarded if it's able to make um, you know, uh, if it's able to beat. So effectively, what you have is is a way where you know you could, you know, gamify this thing to be able to sort of get the best outcome and see you know how models sort of drift over time, what what works, what doesn't work, and effectively you 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 get to do a better model. And generative AI is is an excellent tool to be able to do that. Right? Some of 
these malwares are script-based malwares, for instance, right? And you know, it's going to generate uh, same way how malicious actors are able to do it. You know, we're able to do the same. So it's you know, it's uh, the landscape has changed. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like you know, you have to kind of uh, to make the playground level. Uh, you almost have to come up with creative ways to do what adversaries might be trying to do. Yeah, so I'm thinking about this. I'm really loving this. So a couple of questions. So one is how close, let's say that you had a training set from a year ago and that's when the cutoff was. And then now you have a new data set for the new year as, as of this moment, like the previous 12 months. But in the period of that 12 months, you were also using that engine to create your own versions of, of malware, which you mm -hmm. were then testing against. What I'm curious about is how similar is that engine's generated malware to the new malware that you saw over the year past so like because mm -hmm. if that drift is close mm -hmm. then that just gets better and better that means that it's just tighter and tighter and it's more likely to predict for the next year or whatever that period is th mm -hmm. the real malware that gets generated mm -hmm. yeah no i think that's a great question and i want to do uh, it's a great question because you know in it, when we started we thought you know that was the way to do it and then we could correlate the ones that are generated here versus what we observe to see how well our generation is, right? Mm -hmm. um, of synthetic malware. But I think we quickly realized that it's not the synthetic malwares that are of interest to us. Oh. So we don't generate the synthetic malware or, or anything because that is not of interest. What is of interest is the behaviors. Let me explain it to you uh, very quickly. So let's say uh, a really uh, nasty malware such as let's say redline info stealer, right? We recently published in threat research. It's really bad. It's like you know, uh, typically deployed through social engineering and things like that. And its objective is to steal the information to mount a, a really nasty attack, attack. And we, what we want to do is we want to understand its behavior. What what does it do? So if you think about what it typically does, it basically collects information. It escalates. It does a privilege es uh, escalation. Uh, it extracts passwords, things that you may have typed in and effectively streams that over and uh, you know that enables it to do it. So the behavior that it has exhibited, that something has to be downloaded, there has to be a privilege escalation, it has to extract certain uh, memory dumping that it, it might be doing. So mm -hmm. we sort of model these sequential behaviors that lead to a really bad outcome. And that's what we model. And that's what we create synthetically to, to adjust and see these behavior. If we change the order, if we change the sequences, how well does the model uh, predict. So it's almost like, because the interesting thing about cybersecurity is that all of these malicious actions that it does, these are allowed. So yeah. whether it's malicious or not is dependent on it did something you didn't want it to do. That's what makes it malicious. Otherwise, all of these functions are typical IT functions, like for instance, locking your computer, changing your password, encrypting your yeah. Like all these, are, these are allowed. Reading functions. from memory, writing to memory, Reading writing memory, to disk. I mean, yeah, these are yeah. all APIs. I mean, people want you to do that. Right? Yeah. We do this all the time, right? Uh, all legitimate applications. I mean, we're talking in in Teams here. I mean, it's reading and writing to the buffer all the time. I mean, that's yep. that's allowed. You know. Um, place where it, it is bad is not so much the action itself is bad, is the set of circumstances when this action occurred. That's what makes it bad. Okay. So what we do is we identify what those behavior that malwares exhibit, and then we generate these behavior, and then we see whether we can detect these sequences uh, of behavior in, a, in an effective way. That makes... A lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense because then you don't have to like 
try to pretend because to your point, there's a finite set of things that, that anything can do on a computer. There's a finite number of APIs. It's just like everyone's doing the same stuff. The question is just the, the pattern. And like you said, the ordering. Yeah. Exactly. And also, and also it's, it's the active behavior. Um, and then you can add in more sort of things that you can synthesize in that the first behavior, maybe the color changes, let's say red, orange, and green. Red means bad, orange mm-hmm. means bad, green is not, it's cool, right? So if you use this traffic light analogy, and if you have a sequence of actions that happen over time, they all may not happen at the same time. They could be spread around days or whatever. Right? But if you are able to sort of track these behaviors over time, the colors might change from green to darker green or maybe to orange and to red. So you see one action after the other is what tends it towards mm-hmm. a particular side of being good or bad, right? And if you're able to make those predictions, then before the bad happens, we're able to say, well, you know what, this is trending to be to be uh, to be bad. And then you know you can you can stop it. Mm-hmm. And also it is important in, in what we see in our research is that you know while in isolation, like under a microscope, a particular behavior uh, might look okay, but when we look at it microscopically, it, it might look bad. Uh, just to give an example, in an organization, if something understands typically how IT functions in that organization, then these models can be trained to kind of understand those behavior and make yeah. predictions. Right. So that's what we try to synthesize in in our um, in our modeling, both to detect something that is bad. Also, to do something that is good and see if the model can differentiate that and not call it bad, because that is equally um, uh, disruptive, right? Like I gave you an example, where in a Teams meeting, maybe you send me a file that you want me to read, and if the conference got shut down, I mean, you know, that's bad. Yeah, right? it's legit, right? So, so that is as important as uh, as detecting what is bad. And, and would that be a model change? I mean, I mean to expose yourself to that customer context so that things aren't marked in that negative way would that have to be a model change or could could you do that with like a fine tune yeah that's uh so we could do that uh with with fine tune and it also depends on on prevalence like you know how often it happens like no model is going to give you like 100 percent detection rate right yeah Uh, there's always 99.99 something right so so typically the advantage that Silence AI has, by the way, um, is in our model inference infrastructure, it's not um, some of these technologies that you that you see uh, out there. Like it's not based out of TensorFlow or Python. Like it's not based on these open source tools. Like mm-hmm. since we've been doing this for a very long time before these tools existed, um, it's completely proprietary. And the advantage that we get out of it is we're able to do what is called a hybrid inference, which is we could do partly on the endpoint even when it's not connected. And we could also do it in the cloud. You can almost imagine a distributed model inference. Mm. Right? And then the collective score is what the final decision relies on. So to this particular question, if we see that a certain behavior is falsing a lot, we could create what we call specific weights of that model and target them without having a proper model update. So it's not fine tuning. It's not a model update. But just because we can control the entire spectrum, we can just change certain properties of particular activation and then get the desired output. Oh wow, that that's that is really powerful. So is this all part of the 
the Silence AI agent. Can you talk about like the history of that and like where it is today? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that is part of the Silence AI. I would say probably one of the first application of cybersecurity uh, AI in cybersecurity is probably the Silence engine. If if we just did a a Google Trends uh, search between AI and AI in cybersecurity or Silence AI, you, you'd notice that it's very strongly correlated over the last seven to eight years. Mm. Google Trends that tells you, uh, you know this this thing that I'm sharing. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, since it started before uh, this proliferation, if you will, of consumerization of AI and things like that, so some of the core technologies were built ground up. And you know, on on one side, of course, it's it's quite a bit of R and D investment to to be able to keep it up to date, maintain it, and move it forward. Uh, but it also gives us incredible flexibility. So I believe you know the technology uh, that is there in Silence AI can uniquely run large machine learning models, inferences both on the endpoint, whether they're connected to an infrastructure or not, or in the cloud, and combine them uh, combine them together with least uh, CPU utilization. Yeah, that's really cool. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the advantage of both? Is it that the context is different? Like the, um, the cloud side might have more context across bigger data sets maybe, and maybe the, yeah. the client side is like more real-time and immediate? And then the combination of the two gets you the advantage? That's exactly. You answered the question. So oh, wow. basically, yeah, so that's that's it, right? So the client side is isolated real time on the endpoint. Uh, and it, it has the, the, the model uh, that it requires uh, to run. Uh, and on the infrastructure, it just it has more context. Uh, that's one of the difference. And the other difference is that, you know, it orchestrates also with multiple other endpoints. Uh, to make the uh, the assertions, so so that's what makes it different. We call it the hybrid inference uh, infrastructure. Yeah, that is really cool. What are, what are some um, examples of like real world like use cases of like how customers use it? The type mm-hmm. of stuff like they tried something before, and then they tried your solution and you cut it because of mm-hmm. this reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think real-world use case, I think, you know, we recently published our uh, two, two uh, research, right, the threat research, right? Uh, and there uh, we said that uh, over the period of four months, roughly, you know, our technology stopped about 1.3 million cyber attacks, out of which it's uh, 70%, um, you know, uh, from, a, from an increased perspective from the uh, quarter before. Mm. And if you do the math, that looks like about 2.9 unique malware uh, per minute. And the targets were, um, you know, government, healthcare, financial, uh, critical infrastructure. So at two point new novel malware, uh, our model stopped, uh, which is uh, which is an incredible number because it's not possible to deal with that at a human scale. And this is prevention first. It stopped it. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that. And going back to your previous point, it's not it's not looking for a signature. It's not stopping a signature. No. It's it's looking at the behavior. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, Forrester also recently published that using our technology, um, the overall ROI is uh, 90% reduced uh, from a security workload perspective. Silence technology enables uh, because it's so effective in stopping pre-execution and preventive uh, with a preventive first approach. So you get basically 90% faster protection on new endpoints uh, with fewer personals effectively. And you know, um, this this is published uh, Forrester, I believe, last quarter, I think, in their uh, total economic impact uh, study uh, that they did. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's basically the testament of the technology. 
Oh, that's that's very cool. Yeah, and we'll definitely share those uh, those reports. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the architecture. I, I think it's a really smart way to build it. Um, where do you see things going? Like, um, what do you see in the next like one, two, three years? Like uh, with the Gen AI stuff, and plus what uh, you could do with your uh, with your platform. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, you know Gen AI is like you know we were talking about you know really consumerized it right, and we're already seeing like you know warm GPT, uh, fraud GPT. Uh, dark or you know things like yes. that, right? What these are, they sort of uh, enable all of these um, under um, uh, you know reported information or dark web information into something that makes it uh, extremely easy to build new types of. Um, and I and I would expect the uh, aspect of social engineering based attacks to also increase. Um, you know, phishing is typically the first line of attack. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, rarely are there any attack that actually broke the cryptographic properties of a software or that actually broke an encryption key. Rarely, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, majority of your attack is that you know something somewhere happened that caused something else to happen, and then some really bad things happen. Right? Typically, that's the uh, if you if you go back and, and and look. So where I see is you know we're going to see more of these tools that make malware development really easy. Um, get malware offered as a platform service, like a cloud service, right? Mm-hmm. Or a subscription-based service that we're seeing malware. So you rent out these platforms and do your attack and then you're done with it. And we're gonna see more of these tools sort of, uh, you know, being used. Like before, you know, even uh, if fish, <coughs> what we see is in phishing, <coughs> you have to be very careful on how you would target and you would mass target. Right? Yeah. Attack. But now you could do individually targeted phishing attacks uh, with LLMs, uh, right? You no longer have to create just one email and broadcast it to everybody. That's not targeted, right? Um, for example, if I've been discussing, you know, the same technology that is used to target ads to me, the same technology can be used uh, to basically really craft an email. Maybe I want to go for a vacation. I've been talking about it with my with my spouse and my family. Maybe you know, an email comes in with the right visual properties, right grammar, and you know, typically, you know, what what the way like targeting an ad would be yeah and my muscle memory forces me to click on it and maybe something happens out of that right so you, I, I would see more and more of these types of you know uh taking our um psychological mindset into a way that looks more real uh leveraging LLMs. so i think that we would see a lot more of more refinement and also i think we would see a lot more variation um faster the uh, vulnerability detection um, and faster targeting of exposures. Like before, there used to be like an unwritten rule, right? A threat researcher finds a vulnerability, it gets reported, and there is a time period for the organizations to react and address them. Yep. There's, there's this. But right now, you could leverage these tools and you know ask it to identify a bunch of vulnerabilities, and you know next day you get a <laughs> a, a tool that that sort of takes advantage of it. Right? So I would see more uh, of that. Yeah, like so, a, a, a faster time span between discovery and attack. Yeah, yeah. I, like, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty certain that, you know, there are already tools, even automated tools, like, you know, what we do, for example, that is probably monitoring every new software that's getting released to identify its vulnerability and then have an automation pipeline to generate new scripts that ex- attacks that, right? So I would, see, I would you know, uh, guess that there would be more. So we would see more and more type of newer malware. And uh, from a... Defender's perspective, I would 
I, I think machine learning and data science has to be the tool for uh, defending. Um, and you know that, that, that has to be the instrument. Uh, I don't think the human scale is, is relevant anymore. Yeah. And is there any chance that the, uh, the silence engine can be used for some of these like new types of attacks? Cause it seems like it's, um, it currently excels at the, at the behavior level, at the operating system level. Um, is there a possibility of expanding the engine? Cause it seems really powerful to like operate in other areas and detect other types of attacks or. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, from like the. What what we're focusing on is basically adding more signals that mm. that are in itself may appear weaker or do not have what we call direct correlation mm -hmm. between an input and an output, but there are probably some dependency of that signal with other signals that might help. So for instance, we've included many other properties like behavioral properties as well. Uh, you know, time of day, somebody does certain activity, start detecting various um, social interactions as well like for example oh, great. you know frequency of things that happen and they all feed into these these various inputs uh, whether it's coming from network data whether it's coming from authorization authentication data whether it's coming from just executable data and the key is to sort of uh, you know look at these things in isolation and make a prediction look at this thing in aggregate make a prediction yeah and look at this thing against other similar or entities or groups that do these things and then make a prediction so you have a cascading level and then a decision sort of engine sort of makes the final assertion as to what needs to happen next. yeah i really love that it's like if we were only on this one machine this looks malicious but if you take mm -hmm. into account the team that they're on and the fact that they do yeah. this all the time and if you take into account that this is what the company does yeah exactly. and it's like those are three different ways and you can sort of make a decision there that Absolutely. that is super cool mm -hmm. um what what are some takeaways uh, that you would give the audience in terms of like how to look at this and um, how how to think about this going forward? Yeah, I think you know um, the the takeaways would be like you know I think uh, not all AI is created equally. I think you know is this one key takeaway. I think we did a recent uh, you know article trying to explain that uh, and effectiveness of AI in cybersecurity is, is really whether it withstands the test of time. I, I think that is the only thing. Like. It's not about how big your model is. It's not about how much data it's trained on. It, it, it's none of that. It's does it, you know, what, what predictive advantage does it have and does it demonstrate its ability to generalize well? So that's one of the key things. I think the questions that needs to be asked. Or in fact, any ML should should address these questions, mm -hmm. for, especially in cybersecurity. The second uh, takeaway I would say is, um, you know, you have to adopt uh, machine learning and AI in in your um, in your uh, systems or in your work there is no uh, getting away from it um, it's better to act now um, and equip ai um, technologies in, in cyber solutions and uh, and then you know take advantage of learning uh, the data uh, and then using it to make meaningful decision at the end of the day it falls down to being able to understand um, in totality so that you're able to make a better decision um, so I think, you know, those are the two key uh, takeaways that I would say. And, you know, definitely take a look at our products, take a look at what we've done um, and, um, and you know, apply uh, similarly uh, in your own areas as well. Yeah, perfect. And where can people find more about the Silence Engine and uh, your team and uh, your research? 
Um, I think you know, in we we have published a lot of uh, uh, source code. We've written books about uh, you know hunting in the dark, for example. We've uh, written uh, Cybersecurity 101, uh, Machine Learning for Cyber Professionals. Uh, there is a book available. Um, you could come to our Cybersecurity Data Science blog uh, to see um, you know, all of this information. So, Yeah, very cool. It, it's, uh, it's interesting. BlackBerry Security has always been like top tier for me. Like uh, I've been doing this 20 years, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes they, they appear uh, pretty quiet. But everyone just knows that they're over there doing really cool work. So I've, I've always mm-hmm. uh, looked up to that. And we're going to share all those resources. And it was uh, fantastic talking to you. Uh, same here, Daniel. It was great. I hope, uh, you know, we, we, we spent a good discussion. And I'm glad. Thanks. Awesome. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Unsupervised Learning is produced and edited by Daniel Meisler on a Neumann U87 AI microphone using Hindenburg. Intro and outro music is by Zombie with a Y. And to get the text and links from this episode, sign up for the newsletter version of the show at danielmeisler.com newsletter. We'll see you next time.